Good afternoon, I am Jeff Smelser, and this is Bible Quest. And as soon as I get figured out what camera to be looking at here, I will be ready to go. Look straight ahead. Okay, it doesn't look like... There, okay. I think I see what I need to see now. Am I looking right at you now? Yep, yep, you're good. Okay, <laughs> all right, good. All right, um, so this is Chase Byers with us in Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, and he keeps us straight a lot of times, like just now. <laughs> and Joe Works is coming in from somewhere, or we expect him to come in. Joe, Elmira, New York. Hi, Jeff. Earth, Hi. Elmira. Uh, how are you all doing today? Good, 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 good. So we're going to talk about premillennialism today, dispensational premillennialism. Now, when I say that, you know, most people are going, ah, what's that? But if I said, we're going to talk about the rapture, there's a whole lot of people who would they would perk up at that, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a yeah. very uh, religious world uh, word that gets a lot of uh, attention, a lot of sensational uh, ideas uh, regarding it, maybe some scary. So one of the things that I found interesting is these days, People don't understand the doctrine of premillennial dispensationalism, even people who believe in it, they don't know they believe in it. Because it seems to me, and it's just my observation, this is just anecdotal and what I've observed, so maybe somebody would say, oh, no, 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 they have a different experience. But it seems to me that in most denominations, there's not, in recent years, a great deal of emphasis on the whole system. They just talk about the rapture. And so there are a lot of people who are just, they're just certain that they know what's going to happen in the future, and, and it's the rapture, and um, they're totally unaware that that is one piece of a large system uh, of, of eschatology, we could say, study of last things, and when you start telling them what the whole package is, they go, really? It's kind of like Mormonism. If you tell somebody that actually what's involved in Mormonism is the idea of uh, God used to be a man, he became a God, and he got a God wife, and they had children and sent them into the earth to have to get bodies, and in the future they'll be gods and have their own planets. So they go, really? You know, they're not aware of, of what all goes with the package. All right, well, I've rambled. Let me ramble a little more. I like rambling. Um, when I was young, in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of discussion of premillennialism. Joe, have you ever heard of um, uh, um, late great planet Earth author, Hal, what was his name? Let's see. Hal Lindsey. Hammond. Hal Lindsey. Was that it, Hal Lindsey? Yeah. yeah. Obviously, you have. Chase, you probably have not heard of him? Absolutely not. Have you heard of Left Behind, the television series, or the movie series and the books, Left Behind? No, sir. Okay. Patrick Donahue's helping us out. Hal Lindsey. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid in the 60s and 70s, the book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth and Countdown to Armageddon was another book. They were really big and they went into a great deal of detail about what was going to happen in the future. Um, and one of the reasons was because they expected at that time, they expected Jesus' return to be somewhere around 1988. Any idea why they would have thought that? No? 
I'm, um, I, I'm guessing I, my guess is going to be anytime I hear people come up with numbers on like the exact date of when the world is going to end. Normally it's because they've some, they've done some type of math problem with numbers from the book of revelation or numbers from the book of Daniel. It's normally one of those two things. So actually in this case, um, it's because it was 40 years after the creation of the modern state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in fact, we've got a viewer here who's commenting and he's got it right. 88 reasons Jesus is returning in 1988. Oh no, he's commenting about another book by Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye. 88 reasons Jesus is returning in 1988. So why would it be, why would they think it would have some connection with the formation of the modern state of Israel? Any idea? Well, when the Lord returns, he's going to establish his kingdom and the kingdom was promised to go through Israel. Yeah. And so with the nation of Israel, rising on the national scene again, reclaiming its land, uh, the, the promised land that going all the way back from to Abraham's promises, uh, getting that land back that the, they'd taken with the conquest of Joshua and then lost um, uh, through the kings. Um, now God is setting, setting things back in order, uh, so to speak, uh, is the way it looked. According to this doctrine. And, there's a, and then there's a political reason uh, we were in the middle of the Cold War at that time, and Russia, uh, the Soviet Union, was the big, uh, the big boogeyman, and they were just convinced that Gog of Magog plays into all of this, which they connected with Moscow and Russia, and uh, so there was a lot of angst uh, about this, and so th that fed into this idea that Jesus is coming somewhere around 1988. He didn't. And so after that, I observed that this whole doctrine of premillennial dispensational premillennialism uh, kind of the, was muted. There wasn't so much discussion of it until the year 2000 approached. Why, why, did you notice that as the year 2000 approached, once again, there was a lot of interest in uh, the rapture and that sort of thing? I didn't notice it at all. How old are you, Chase? I'm 24. <laughs> so you didn't notice it at all. This is, you were four years old. So um, why, why would there have been a lot of uh, attention given to it at that time? Uh, because Chase was born? That's right. <laughs> Chase was born. And they, and they thought, this is the sign of the end. Uh, no. Yeah. So Pat, again, Pat Donahue's got it right. The start of the seventh millennium. Uh, there was a lot of you, you may or may not remember, you guys, Y2K and the idea that with the turn of the century, all our computer systems were going were gonna to crash because everything had been coded for two digits. I, I was working in, in, in the world at that time where I was working, doing a lot of coding where we were changing things to four digits for the year instead of two digits. But, um, but they, they, they noted that if, if it had been 6,000 years since creation, this would be the beginning of the 7,000th or the, the seventh millennium. And so maybe that would be the beginning of the thousand year reign. And so Jesus would come around the turn of the century and you'd have the rapture. Yeah, Chase. Well, I was just going to say, wasn't there, Never mind. Never mind. I'll ask you after the show. You can All give right. me a more detailed history lesson after the show. All right. But that didn't happen. And so, uh, so it kind of died down. In recent months, I have noticed 
renewed discussion about the rapture and about dispensational premillennial doctrine in general. And I've run into more and more people in churches where this is being taught. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna lay it out here in just a second. We better get to it fairly quickly. But why now? Why now? It died out after 1988, died out after 2000. Why now is it coming back? So I'm going to give an observation from the perspective of someone who this is this last five years is really first I've dug into premillennialism. All growing up, it really wasn't something that was discussed in church for me because there were more foundational things to talk about. And so they didn't really go into detail on premillennialism. I was just taught what the scriptures say. It's my opinion that people like talking about what's unknown. Um, when it comes when it comes to the end of the world, when it comes to spooky things like that, and I'll even say conspiracy theory type stuff. I'm not saying the scriptures are conspiracy theory, but things that feed that side of somebody of the unknown and the spooky and the, that that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think normally people would look more likely buy into the rapture and to things along, along those lines when they enjoy that type of stuff. You're, you're um, absolutely right. There are a lot of people who would a whole lot rather speculate about the future and what revelation means than they would want to study about the works of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit. Um, you're right, but go on. Oh, no, that's that's what I was going to say. That's just my observation kind of on, on the other side of things. And Why so, this year? Why this year? Could it could it be because of just the division in the country? Maybe the maybe is it something to have to do with the number 2020? Am I missing no, no, out no, on no, that? No. no, I think so. Our viewer says the election, that's part of it. We've had a very contentious election. COVID, uh, economy shut down, murder hornets, uh, California on fire. Uh, This has been a crazy year. Um, And so people are starting to say, maybe these are the signs of the end, all of that kind of thing. Joe, you look contemplative. No, I I think that that COVID has really caused people to uh, think uh, about death a, a lot more and a worldwide plague. Um, you know that that term is being used uh, that that calls to mind some of the revelation passages. Yep, yep. Another viewer comments the election. So there has been more attention to it. So let's let's take a look at what this doctrine is all about here. I'm going to share a screen. I'm, I am going to share that screen right there. I hope this comes up the way I intend. And it did. Great, great. All right. So um, let me focus that and hop out of here and get back to right there. So premillennialism, <clears throat> the word pre-millennialism, the pre means before, and millennium has to do with a thousand, a thousand years. And so the book of Revelation mentions a thousand years, Jesus reigning for a thousand years, his saints reigning with him. And so the premillennial doctrine says Jesus is going to come pre-millennium. That is, Jesus will return before the, the thousand years begins. And that that general concept has been around for a long time. But dispensational premillennialism is the version which talks about the rapture. And this is something that's been popular for a little over 100 years. I think it has its roots in the 1800s, but is really a little over 100 years ago that it really took off. Um, And it's the doctrine 
uh, that goes, I'm going to skip all that, and J Darby, Moody, Brooks, Blackstone, Schofield, these are names of people who popularized it, but uh, it's the doctrine that says Blackstone is, uh, is the author of a little book, oh, I've got it here somewhere, can't find it, that was written toward the beginning of the 20th century, and in that book, he argued Jesus would have set up the kingdom 2,000 years ago, but they rejected and crucified him. Uh, and that's in the book, Jesus is Coming. All right, well, so what do you get out of that? This statement, Jesus would have set up the kingdom, but they rejected and crucified him. That... All right, so when, when, you, when you would have done something, but something got in your way, that's called failure. That, yes, that's, that's that, right. that would be failure. So that's Jesus, right. his mission and what he wanted to do was a failure. Is yes, what he said. that's right. So he was crucified, and then he ascended, and he's going to try again. But, but in the meantime, you have the church age, and the gospel gets preached to Gentiles. And then at the end of the church age, the church age would be what they say we're in now. The church is going to get raptured out of the way. Okay, watch this again. Here goes the church. You ready? There it goes. Boom. So he got raptured right out of the way. It gets taken up to heaven. And here's how they envisioned this. This is uh, from one of the publications, a little tract put out by the dispensational premillennialists. And if you look here, you'll see this car is crashing because the occupants have gotten raptured. Here's a plane crashing into a building because the pilot got raptured. Are, are those like UFOs over the cars? No, those are those are people going out of the cars. That's oh, the driver and his passenger. I see. Okay. And they're getting they're getting caught up to heaven. I see now. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so, but but they don't believe that's the end of the world. That's just the church getting taken up to heaven, and then life goes on on earth. They say, and that's where the concept of left behind. So there were these books and these movies that came out several years ago. Uh, left behind, and they painted a picture of what life would be like on earth according to their vision of things after the rapture. And here's an example. A newspaper would come out and say, multitudes missing, disaster strikes earth, police unable to control mobs and looting, panic and terror worldwide, hundreds of wrecks, drivers missing. So if you were a believer, you'd get raptured up to heaven and your car would crash, and the next day people would go, where did Chase go? We found his car wrecked on the side of the road, but Chase wasn't there. Why? That was also true for this guy. And this guy, there's hundreds of people like that. And so life would go on on earth, except without all of the believers. That's the concept of the rapture. You're supposed to come in there with something. Well, I was going to, well, for me, what I was thinking is that sounds very similar to what happened in the last Avengers movie. But yeah, that's <laughs> very, all right. very interesting. <laughs> Jeff, I wonder, uh, maybe everybody knows this, but uh, it might be helpful. When we use the word rapture, that's just sort of a um, churchy uh, word, a, a religious word. Um, if I understand it right, the, the word is really literally the idea of caught up. Um, and, and so yeah. uh, it might be helpful if we think about you, you, you've used that phrase that, that those people were caught up yeah. uh, in the sky. Um, now, I this is not what the Bible teaches. This, this is this doctrine. Yeah. All right. Now, um, so what happens then 
after the rapture, there's a period supposedly of, of seven years. And this is all supposed to be in the very near future. And during this seven years, all the Jews go back to Israel. And so people who believe in this doctrine, they've been monitoring the migration back to Israel of Jews from other countries over the last many decades. And they, they see that as the beginnings of this great return to Israel on the part of all the Jews. And when they get back there, they're supposed to rebuild the temple. And um, of course, right now, the, the, there's a mosque on the temple site. And uh, the, Pal the, the Arabs, the Palestinians own some of that land. But they say, nope, the Jews have got to get that back. You can start to see where people who believe in this doctrine it's going to affect their political views as to how the United States should deal with situations in the Mideast. They also say that there's going to be an Antichrist. And what they say about the Antichrist is he's going to start out at the beginning of this seven-year period after the rapture, appearing to be on the side of Israel. And he's going to aid Israel in building the temple and going back to the land there. But partway through this seven years, about halfway through, they say suddenly he turns out to be a bad guy. And he starts, he instigates this great persecution against Jews who start to believe. Um, so have you heard any talk about the Antichrist recently? I, I personally have not. Um, I, I, did, I guess I have had a few people reach out to me in specific and ask if COVID is the sign of the end times, but not specifically ask if a particular political leader or someone in particular is the Antichrist. Well, there was a, in a mainstream, um, Pat, Pat says not since Gorbachev. Yeah, I remember Kissinger was thought to be the Antichrist back in the 60s and 70s uh, because he was helping to negotiate a peace deal and so he must be the Antichrist because the Antichrist is going to start out looking like an ally of the Jews. More recently, the Trump administration. Oh, yeah. when, okay, so you're saying when Trump, um, he put an office in Jerusalem or something like that? Well, he, he moved uh, the embassy back to Jerusalem. And right. premillennialists saw that as, as a step toward all of this. But more recently, when the Trump administration negotiated this peace deal in the Mideast, and that, that got some positive press, um, not as much as you might have thought, but uh, there were, was one writer who came out and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, this could be the beginning of the end times, this could be the Antichrist at work, you know, because it starts out looking like a good thing and then turns against Israel. And then this Antichrist will instigate this great persecution against Jews, and then Jesus will come. By the way, by the way, they say, remember, Chase, you used the word failure for what happened back here at the cross. Jesus was going to yes, set up the kingdom. Well, according to this system, when Jesus returns at the end of the seven years, there's the great battle of Armageddon. Jesus defeats the Antichrist. And now all the Jews are believers. And you might say, well, how do they know it's going to be successful this time if it was a failure last time? If the Jews rejected Jesus last time, why won't they reject him this time? And the answer is, according to the premillennialists, Jesus, uh, the Lord is going to miraculously convert all the Jews. They're just 
So if you're a Jew, you're automatically set. You're going to get automatically converted. You've got to go through the seven years of, of tribulation. The tribulation is during these seven years here. But after that, you're going to get converted. and Or maybe even during that, you're going to get converted. And then Jesus is going to come back. And at that time, he will set up his thousand-year kingdom on earth, reigning in Jerusalem. Animal sacrifices will be reestablished. Uh, so you've got in this whole system a clear distinction between the church age, which is now and which is primarily Gentile, and the kingdom, which is in the future and primarily Jewish. Yeah, Chase. You're, You're talking about this. Yeah, my bad. You're talking about this thousand-year kingdom. Uh, is this coming from, you might have mentioned this earlier, but is this talking about Revelation 25, okay. the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed? Yep, exactly. Okay. And back up back up to verse um uh, oh two uh yeah um as he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years yep. threw him into the abyss shut it sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed after these things he must be released for a short time and then at the end of verse four it's going to talk about the saints reigning with christ for a thousand years right okay all right so that's the system. So when people talk about the rapture, the rapture is a part of this whole system here. Um, all right, so let's talk about all of this. And there, there are four points that, that I, I think are worth emphasizing. What the Bible teaches, concepts that we see in the Bible that are at odds with this system, or we might say this system is at odds with the Bible. Um, Okay, so what's, what's one, just conceptually, what's one big thing that you see in this system that is at odds with the Bible? Well, for starters, I, I wouldn't say that Jesus failed in his mission. That, that would be an odd thing to say. Yeah, and so the way we're going to talk about it, as I put up the bullets here, is that the, Jesus' death on the cross and the establishment of the church was part of God's plan. That was his eternal purpose. It was not things gone awry. What's something else that you see in all of this that seems at odds with what the Bible teaches? Well, it shows that it's just the Christians that are caught up with the Lord or, or that are going to be taken up and that people are going to be remaining on the earth at that time, as opposed to the Bible's clarity that everyone is going to be uh, judged at the same time. Yeah, and I really don't have that in the bullets, but we'll get to that in a minute. That's right. John John 5 would be a passage we'll want to go to and talk to us about the point you just made. Here's a couple that I had in mind. This teaches that in the future, we're going to have a physical throne on a physical earth in a physical Jerusalem with a physical temple and animal sacrifices. But in the Old Testament, the law that we saw in the temple that was there and the animal sacrifices that they offered were all considered a shadow of something to, coming, to come, not the reality. And so my question is, why, if these things were just a shadow of things to come in the reality is Christ, once we have Christ, why would we go back to the things that are merely a shadow? So we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, another idea that we need to, to see is mistaken is that Jesus is not now reigning, that he will begin to reign in the future over his thousand-year kingdom. The Bible is going to teach Jesus now reigns, that when he ascended right here, he ascended uh, to reign. Uh, 
Chase, back to your point that Jesus' death on the cross was not a failure, the church is, in the Bible, a part of God's eternal purpose. It's what God had in mind all along, and Jesus purchased the church with his blood by his death on the cross. And finally, um, and this is the one I want to really emphasize, this whole system sees a distinction between Gentiles in the church and Jews in the kingdom and how they're saved. Uh, remember, Jews are just going to be miraculously converted down here, and they're part of a kingdom. They're not in the church. The church is primarily a Gentile thing, and so they see a distinction between these two that is contrary to what we see in the Bible. All right, those are the things I want to go through. Let's hit the first three fairly concisely, and then let's get to the fourth one. Yeah, Chase, did you have something there? Oh, no, I was just looking at some of the, the comments. We do, we, had, we do have a few questions. Um, go I'll, just re I'll, read to, I'll read them to you, and you can tell me how you want to handle them. Okay. Um, so CJ Marshall asks, can you talk about Revelation 1.1 and the word soon? Um, I guess he's specifically talking about when he talks about things that are soon to take place. Yeah. And also, can you talk about the verse in Revelation that says one left and another taken? So that's um, actually in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, and uh, I think there's right. another passage. Yeah. Um, and then Perry just commented on what you said. He said, is the answer you were looking for is when Jesus returns, then after the resurrection, he then gives them back the kingdom instead of starting his rule, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, 13. yeah. So, so we'll get to that. We're going to get to that in just a second. All right. Good to get those on the table. Let's talk about the concept the law was only a shadow of things to come. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year draw perfect those who draw near. Um, so here you've got the Old Testament foreshadowing the cross, foreshadowing the death of Jesus with these animal sacrifices. We get to Jesus. That's the real deal. Why would we go back to animal sacrifices in the future? Does that make any sense? Especially after the clarity with which the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews, deals with the insufficiency of animal sacrifices. Yeah. And, and just the permanent nature of the sacrifice of Jesus. Yeah. Um, You've got the Old Testament Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover. The Old Testament Passover lamb was a shadow of Jesus. That's the reality. The temple that was made of stone in the Old Testament. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 2 relative to this? We are living stones. Yeah, we are living stones built up a spiritual house. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, God's people are a uh, habitation for God in the Spirit, a holy temple. That's the reality. Um, and in John 4, Jesus made the case that the hour was coming when neither in that mountain where the Samaritans worship nor in Jerusalem but those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth because God is spirit and the, and the truth is the reality. So why would we go, some, go back to something that's not the reality in the future and, and build a physical temple? I think this whole concept just flies in the face of the concept of the physical temple was a shadow of things to come. The reality, temple made of living stones. Uh, the second point here, Jesus now reigns in his kingdom. Who was it that mentioned 1 Corinthians 15? Perry. Okay, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, right here. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 
where it's talking about the, the resurrection in the future. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign, not begin to reign after the resurrection. Rather, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. He's going to reign until death is defeated. When is death defeated? At the resurrection. According to dispensational premillennialists, the rapture is the, re is the resurrection of the righteous. But they have the reign of Jesus starting after that. But 1 Corinthians 15 says he reigns until that. Which, which their own language often betrays that because they'll speak of Jesus as being king, uh, yep. but then they, they want to make him a homeless king. That's right, a, king, a kingdomless king. Uh, in Mark 1.15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Of course, what they say is he really meant to make the kingdom available but he failed. The Jews rejected him and crucified him instead. Matthew 12, 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. The Old Testament prophesied that the kingdom would come with the Spirit, the Spirit would come with the kingdom. So his inference is, if I'm doing this by the Holy Spirit, you know the kingdom has come upon you. In Mark 9, 1, Chase, you were talking... Uh, Drew, Drew was talking with us beforehand about this passage. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there are some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In what century did Jesus say that? First century. So what's that saying? It's going to happen in the first century. Yeah, the kingdom of God was to come while some of those people were still alive. Um, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. What did Jesus do after he was raised from the dead? Did he ascend straight up to the Father immediately? He spoke to the apostles for 40 days concerning the kingdom of God. Yeah, he's raised from the dead. He's on his way back up to the Father. But what does he spend his last 40 days on earth doing? Talking about the kingdom of God. Why? Because he was ascending to sit at the right hand of God and rule. And so in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes about preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. Um, I, in Revelation, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Acts 28, so the end of the book of Acts, when Paul finally gets to Jerusalem, he stayed two, or sorry, to Rome, he, he stays two full years in his own running quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus with all Excellent. openness unhindered. Excellent, good. And of course, Revelation 12, 5 pictures the Messiah as the child that's caught up to God and to his throne when he ascends, uh, when the dragon was trying to defeat him. Uh, so the picture in the Bible is Jesus is raised from the dead and then ascends to reign over his kingdom, and he reigns until death is defeated. The third point, the church is part of God's eternal purpose. Ephesians 3, verse 10 and 11 make that point. And how is, we've already said it, but this goes back to something you said, Chase. How is the fact that the church is part of God's eternal purpose contrary to this dispensational premillennial idea? Or I could say it the other way around. How is premillennial dispensationalism contrary to this concept? 
I don't know. What did I say earlier that would help you? you talked about Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a failure. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, his goal, his whole purpose was to die for the sins of the entire world. Yeah. And that was accomplished on the cross. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, used, yeah. it's really shocking to me. And I know, I know they, they, they try to say it both ways. They try to say we're saved by the death of Christ and the death of Christ was just something that happened because the Jews rejected the kingdom. And if they had accepted him, he would have set up his kingdom then. But if you, if you believe that, that it makes the cross, it makes the cross not only an accident, but unnecessary for our salvation. And that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. But the point that I really want to stress is this one. The Bible teaches Jews and Gentiles are reconciled in one body unto God through the cross. Remember, the premillennial concept has a Jewish church, I'm sorry, a Gentile church back here and a Jewish kingdom down here. The Jewish church or the Gentile church, that's people who are saved through faith. The, the Jewish kingdom, you could say they have faith, but if you do, you're going to have to acknowledge it was given to them miraculously. They didn't choose to believe, they were just converted in mass without any choice. In the future, all the Jews automatically converted. Uh, that's the doctrine. So when we come back to what the Bible teaches, let's get right here. Um, Acts 15, 9. This is when Peter is trying to explain Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to keep the law of Moses. And what story does he refer to? What what incident does he refer to as evidence? The, uh, the conversion of Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Gentile, right? And when people are wanting to say, well, if they're going to be part of the church, they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Remember, the church was primarily Jews up until that point. So the question isn't, can Jews come in? The question is, can Gentiles come in? And Peter's making the case, not only can they come in, they don't have to become Jews to come in because God made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, he's talking about the Gentiles. Their hearts were cleansed by faith. But clearly, Peter's saying the Jews' hearts are cleansed by faith. They're all saved the same way. What's Paul say in Romans 10, 12? He says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In Ephesians 2, 16, God reconciles us both to God in one body through the cross. I've got two questions for you from this statement in Ephesians 2.16. When it says, might reconcile us both, who is the both? That would be Jews and Gentiles in the context. Yeah. And what's the one body in the context? The body of Christ, something he'll refer to over and over again in the book of Ephesians. In fact, go back to the last two verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and it refers to the body of Christ, which is the church. So in the last two verses of Ephesians 1, he says the body is the church. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, he says Jews and Gentiles are both reconciled to God in one body through the cross. That's the church. So you don't have this concept of a Gentile church and then later on um, a Jewish kingdom. Moreover, a Gentile church where people have to choose to believe and later on, a Jewish kingdom where Jews automatically are converted miraculously. Yeah. And what's funny to me, you know, you talked about 
some of these things are new to me. I didn't know a lot of these things. You were talking about this thinking that after the thousand years, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and build this temple. In this conversation in Ephesians 2, uh, he'll go on to say, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. Exactly. In the Lord. Exactly. There's your temple, your spiritual temple. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, so people, if you're watching this and you think you believe in the rapture, uh, where people get taken up and life goes on on the earth for other people and there's a great tribulation and all of that kind of thing, what you're believing in is a system that we're describing and that is at odds with the Bible in all these ways. Namely, it, it's contrary to the Bible teaching that the, the animal sacrifices and the physical temple are just a shadow of things to come. It's contrary to the Bible, which teaches that the church, the cross of Jesus Christ and the church were part of God's eternal plan all along. God wasn't going to set up a kingdom without those things. It, it's contrary to the Bible teaching in that uh, Jews and Gentiles are reconciled unto God in one body through the cross, according to, um, according to uh, what the Bible teaches. So here's the biblical picture. Uh, Jesus is caught up, raised from the dead, and ascends to heaven. And then you have the church, the one body, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And it, 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 it persists for a thousand years. Now, what's the problem people are going to see with that? Well, let me go on. So what happens then at the end is in the future, Jesus is going to come down. The saints are going to be caught up to meet him in the air and you have the final judgment. Here's the problem people are going to see with that. They're going to say, wait a minute, thousand years. What year is this? This is 2020. We've already come 2020 years since the birth of Jesus or roughly 2000 years since the death of Jesus. So that thousand year number they're going to say doesn't work. What's the problem yeah. with that? Well, I mean, are we taking every other number in the book of Revelation literally, or do we need to see them all symbolically? Yeah, so let's skip all of this, and let's talk about numbers in the book of Revelation. Um, so what do we know about numbers in the book of Revelation? They're often tied to different pictures or numbers that we had seen from things in the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah, so often given in symbolism. Symbolism. Joe, you teach Revelation fairly frequently. When you, um, when you look at the phrase, the seven spirits of God, what do you take that to mean? The full, uh, the seven being full, maybe tied back to Isaiah 11, uh, but just recognizing the fullness of God and his awareness in every way. So you don't take it that there are seven Holy Spirits? No, I do not. So in other words, you're looking at that number as having a meaning that's not a counting meaning, but it's a meaning that the number seven is associated with a concept. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, a similar statement made in, in Revelation uh, that the, some of the Christians were going to suffer for 10 days. Yeah, yeah. And, or another, uh, another suffering number in the Bible uh, in the book of Revelation, you'll often, you'll several places in the book of Revelation, you'll see a reference to a period of time that's described either as 1,260 days. How many months would that be? 42. And you'll also see 42 months mentioned. And how many years would that be? Three and a half. 
Yeah, three and a half, and you'll sometimes see the phrase both in Daniel and the book of Revelation, time, times, and half a time, which can be taken to be three and a half. And that's a, a number that is used in various passages in Daniel and Revelation to portray a period of persecution, a period of hardship, but it's not to be taken literally as in 1,260 days. It's a number that has symbolic meaning. What's another number in the book of Revelation that has symbolic meaning, but you're not supposed to actually count it? 666. The there you go. Be, yeah, all short of the number seven, threefold. Right. Yeah. What's another one in the book of 144,000? Yeah, what's the 144,000? Well, the, the text in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14, where that number is used, uh, is referring to um, a certain number from each tribe, uh, 12,000 uh, male Jewish virgins from a, each of the 12 tribes. Of, of Israel, although but even the 12 tribes, we find it difficulty with the names of them in the text. Yeah, so there's, there's not a tribe of Dan mentioned, and there's not a tribe of Ephraim mentioned, and yet they managed to come up with 12 tribes, and does it seem odd that there would be exactly 12,000 from each tribe? Some of those tribes were much larger than other tribes, so in the end, what do you discern is the meaning, the significance, the symbolism there? What's that representing? Yeah, so you, he, he takes Dan out. Dan was known through particularly the book of Judges as a cowardly and ungodly tribe. They're not included, um, uh, but he does uh, have uh, listed there the, the tribe of Levi in, instead, who was generally not counted amongst the 12 tribes. Uh, so you have this, the, the sense of this fullness of, uh, of, the, of, of God's people. And, and if you look at the context there, it's in a context where it's talking about a judgment that's going to be coming upon the earth, um, but God's people are going to be protected, and they're going to be sealed. And so the number is given 144,000. Well, and, and, and the tribes of Israel are, are, are mentioned, each one, with those interesting exceptions. But keep in mind that in the New Testament, God's people, the church, is called the Israel of God in Galatians 6, I think, verse 15. In Galatians 3, 29, Paul says, if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. So uh, the church of Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, those who've had their hearts cleansed by faith, together they are Israel. And what you have in Revelation 12 I think the number comes from the idea of 12 tribes in the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New Testament, multiply those together and multiply it by a big round number, 1,000, you get 144,000. But it's not intended to say that's the number of believers on earth. It's, it's intended to say, here's a number that represents the people of God on earth. And then it talks about the people of God above. So all of that to say this, in the book of Revelation, numbers often, maybe even usually, have symbolic significance rather than counting significance. I don't know. Do we ever do that in our culture today? Can you think of examples where we talk? I think we do. I think there are instances where we use numbers with a symbolic meaning rather than a literal meaning. Well, we do that hundreds of times. 
Well, there's one right there. <laughs> is it, and is it almost, I, I'm not an English guy, but is it almost kind of like using a superlative in some ways? It, it can be a superlative, but it's not always meant to be superlative or extreme. Sometimes it's just this number has this significance. Uh, for example, um, Pat, Pat's got a good one there. Okay, what does he have? The Big Ten has 12 or 14 members in their conference. Yes, yes, that's right. It's so silly. Big Ten football. It used to be back in the day, there were literally 10 teams in the Big Ten, but not anymore. But that 10 stands for that conference. And so it's not a counting number anymore. It's a symbolic number. So when we come to the number 1,000 in Revelation 20, and it says 1,000 years, it would be silly to suppose that you can start at some date after the resurrection of Jesus and count forward a thousand years and say, that's the kingdom. It's meant to describe a long time during which Jesus will reign before he comes. And when he comes, there's going to be the resurrection. Joe, we've just got a minute. Let's wrap it up with the point you alluded to earlier. What the Bible teaches will happen when Jesus comes. Now I'll set you up. Dispensational premillennialists say, first is a rapture. So that's the, the church gets raptured up to heaven. And then they say there's seven years, and at the end of the seven years, people who got converted during the seven years will get raised. And then after that, there's a thousand years when Jesus reigns on earth, and at the end of the thousand years, the wicked are raised. And so they have three different points at which people are raised, and most of the righteous raised a thousand and seven years before the wicked are raised. What does the Bible teach? Uh, three passages come to mind. Don't have time to deal with all of them. First Thessalonians 4, uh, Matthew 25, and John 5. I'll read John 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who, are in, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We have a universal resurrection of, uh, of the dead and uh, a judgment, perfect harmony with Matthew 25, 31 through 48 of uh, the sheep and the goats standing around the throne. Um, uh, and so there, there's not going to be uh, separate raptures for the good and the bad. Um, but the, the Bible is clear that we're all going to, to be judged at the same time. And there's not a returning to the earth either that's described so according to the Bible, when Jesus comes, that's the end, and we need to be living and be ready for it. But all of this other stuff that you hear about getting raptured out of the way and then a battle of Armageddon and uh, all of that kind of thing going on, that is missing the mark. The book of Revelation does talk about uh, a battle of Armageddon, but it's talking about something that has happened a long time ago. Um, we can talk about that some other time. But thank you for your attention today. We hope this was helpful. Lord willing, we'll see you next week.